X-ray. It's the Veerbana Show, broadcast in Portland on X-ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. We join you from our respective homes where we continue to maintain a safe social distance. Very distant. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. Look at look at you riding on the fly. That was some good stuff, man. I know. Woo. We're going to have to, have to go changed, back and... I changed one word. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. It sounded really professional. <laughs> oh, okay. We got we to gotta crack that then. Next yeah, time, we'll make sure right. it's <laughs> back to the same crack. Uh, we're about, I don't know, what, two, three miles away from each other. So that's a good self, safe social distance, I think. I think so. And there's a lot of people in between us. So they're the real problem. Yeah. So we are, we are, uh, using the miracle of the internets to record our show, uh, at home in our home studios. I'm in studio, Indeed. studio South, your studio North. Uh, I should introduce you by the way, since I oh, ne- yes. never got around to doing that. You are Jeff Allworth, author of several books, including beer Bible secrets, of master brewers in the Widmer way. And you are Patrick Emerson, a professor of economics at Oregon State University. Uh, We are welcoming a very special guest to the show, Matt Van Wyk, one of three men behind Alesong Brewing in Eugene, Oregon, the aforementioned Alesong. Alesong recently won two medals at the GABF to add to the six they've already won, and we thought it was high time to have Matt on the show. Alesong focuses entirely on barrel aging, working with aged ales as well as wild and spontaneous beers. Founded in 2016, the brewery has quickly become one of the most decorated in the state, and its unusual approach makes it a fascinating subject for today's discussion. So we're going to go to that interview soon, but before we do that, of course, we have to tell you about the news. So we have entered the holiday period of shopping uh, with Black Friday just a few days in the past as we record this, as we mentioned, uh, and forecasters are all over the map about what they expect. One firm, Simon Kutcher and Partners, uh, conducted a survey of 11,000 consumers and found they uh, anticipated spending on average 12% less this year than in 2019. Uh, and no surprise, they also plan to do more of their shopping online this year, a trend that may be permanent. So I saw this and I, you know, we're living in this COVID time, which is uh, a weird disruption, but also may have long-term, you know, long-term effects. And I was wondering, uh, since I had an economist here, you know, what do you expect? The the holiday shopping season has always been such an in-person, tangible kind of thing, uh, really important to uh, businesses across the United States, this five week period, four or five week period. Yeah. Um, what, you know, what do you, what do you, what are your thoughts? Is this going to, are we moving into a a different model? What do you think? Well, I, I mean, I think this is a trend that's been in place for a little while now. And I think that, yes, we're sort of seeing the acceleration of the trend. People who haven't been exposed to, or haven't uh, typically done shopping online or probably shopping online now and discovering maybe it's good or maybe it's bad depending on their experience, but, uh, but are being exposed to it. Um, and I suspect that there's going to be a, a fair amount of, uh, uh, transition from that people realizing, you know, this is a pretty decent way to do stuff, but you know, that the, the whole retail experience has been having, uh, 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 is had, has been undergoing a transformation for a number of years. You know, the big malls are sort of dying out and, uh, 
uh, and there's been a lot more online shopping, but there's still sort of a room uh, now for more sort of boutique stores and boutique experiences. So I don't know. Uh, uh, you know, there's part of me, the cynical part of me thinks that, yeah, everyone's been exposed to things like, uh, and I know this is not retail, but things like, uh, you know, DoorDash and Postmates and uh, Instacart and, and, and in my experience, at least those things suck. Uh, <laughs> like, okay, so I've been pushed into that world and now I realize that's really a really crappy way to do things. You know, DoorDash is wrong and and gets delivered late and there's missing items probably because the dude was hungry or whatever. It's just not not a not a great experience in my in my personal uh uh anecdotal world uh i also try, <laughs> I tried speaking of thanksgiving i try it uh my wife was getting a little concerned about the crowds and the stores and the covid and all that stuff and so we decided to do instacart order for our big thanksgiving shopping um and uh it came like six hours late um and the person was shopping at when the store was closing and like having to rush around and grab stuff and so it was that was a pretty lousy experience too. So I have, I have sort of two minds of this. I think that some people are going to see it and think this is great and I don't have to go outside anymore. And some people are going to see it and and think, uh, uh, this really sucks. I can't wait to get back and just be out there and do things on my own and, and be social and, and be in stores. Gotcha. Uh, so the second one is, uh, and as you do your holiday shopping, we've got a little advice about, uh, how to help your friendly neighborhood breweries. In discussing how to help them out, they offer this advice. Buy directly from the brewery rather than shopping at liquor and grocery stores. Breweries make a much higher margin that way. Two, tip when you're buying beer or food to go, which helps servers in dangerous jobs make ends meet. And three, considering consider buying gift cards, which infuse money into breweries now uh, when you buy them, uh, which they can redeem later and gives them an infusion of cash, which is probably very useful these days. Yes. So... Uh, you have a little money rattling around your pockets. That's a nice way to help out your local breweries. Yeah, and hat tip to you and your blog where you've uh, sort of kept up with local breweries during this time. And uh, and there's a lot of good, interesting uh, stories and anecdotes there from brewers about how they're how they're getting through this time. And, and that's where this advice comes from, I assume. Indeed. Yes, indeed. I think I missed a sentence in there, which I'm sure the uh, careful listener figured out, but that's fine. Okay. <laughs> Yes, and you didn't mock me, which I also appreciate for my for my port uh, writing s- skills there. Okay, well, let, let's pause a minute, and then we will come back with our very special guest. Matt Van Wyke started his professional life teaching high school science in Iowa when he happened to take a summer job as a brewery cellarman. This led him to pursue brewing professionally. He started by earning a degree at Siebel working at small breweries, and then taking the brewmaster's job at Flossmoor Station near Chicago in 2003. In 2009, he relocated to Eugene to become brewmaster at Oakshire, and that's where Jeff and I first met him. Then in 2015, he announced he was leaving Oakshire to to found Alesong with brothers Brian and Doug Coombs. Hi, Matt. Welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Does that all sound correct? Yeah, you you nailed it. Although I I went to college in Iowa and my first teaching job was in Illinois, but uh, same thing. All these West Coast people, that's the same thing. Midwest. <laughs> you know, okay. I just I I just you, you, 
you you poked the bear. I have to I have to say I actually I actually Googled uh, the name of the high school. So this was listed on the uh, the Alesong website. I Googled the name of the high school and added Iowa, and there is a high school uh, with that name in Iowa. So I thought I was clear. Oh wow! No way. Yeah. I know. <laughs> anyway, sorry I got that one wrong. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, for 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 Oregonians, they're Midwestern I states, so it's all the same to them. Fly over. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, as, as a Wisconsin boy, Iowa's forgivable, but Illinois is not. So that's, that's right. right. We can both agree to hate them, right? Yeah. There we go. <laughs> uh, well, Matt, it's great to have you along. We um, we did a, a podcast not too long ago about uh, the Great American Beer Fest, which apparently you heard because you contacted us and said, you know, guys, uh, I have those beers you tried to find and couldn't find. And uh, if you'd like some, I'll send some. And we, not being fools, agreed. <laughs> uh, and and then we invited you to come here because uh, we thought it would be great to hear what you're doing down there at Alesong, which is kind of an unusual project. Um, and I think our readers will find it or our listeners will find it very interesting. But before we get to that, why don't you, we, we kind of touched a little bit briefly on your life. Why don't you talk a little bit about how you made that transition from science teacher to uh, brewer? It's kind of a, you know, a big shift to go from one profession to another like that. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And, and I thought they were farther apart than, than they actually are. But, you know, when, when I was teaching science and, and I ended up getting a a master's degree in teaching as well. And, um, no one ever explained to me sort of when I was, uh, in my formative years of, of beer drinking and which became craft beer drinking that, you know, the, the beer making process fermentation it, is all science. And, and it seems very clear to me now, but it didn't as a 21, 22, 24, 26 year old. Um, but when I kind of made that, uh, discovery of how beer was made, I realized, I've been looking at the glycolysis site, you know, the Krebs cycle and glycolysis for so long in boring <laughs> biology books, and now it's starting to make sense. And and so I was very intrigued in the beer making process because of kind of the science background. And and uh, this was the late '90s in um, in Illinois, and a lot of brew pubs were popping up. And just getting a chance to go into a brew pub um, when I was kind of cutting my teeth on craft beer. Um, and, and talk to the brewer, the guy who made the beer, um, was pretty outstanding. And when I asked him, because I had, you know, summer break, winter break, spring break, all the breaks that teachers get, I said, can I come in and help you? You know, even if it's wash kegs, which a lot of brewers got their start that way. And, uh, he said, yes. And there's a lot of steps after that, but, but it led me to, um, 20 years now in the, in the, in the craft beer industry. And how did you get from Flossmore Station to Oakshire? Like, what I, I know you've told me this, but I've, I've now forgotten it. And, and of course, no one else uh, was privy to that conversation. Yeah, that that was interesting. Um, when we uh, there, there's a, a Madison, Wisconsin reference in this story too. Um, <laughs> right right I, on. There is when I was living in uh, suburbia of Chicago and and uh, being a small town Iowa boy. It's it's not the place I wanted to um, really put down my roots and start a family. So my wife and I. Um, who works as an advisor at the University of Oregon. Um, she was working at UIC, University of Illinois, Chicago. And we were just looking around where our next steps were and um, what we would be doing. And sort of a, a Big Ten sort of uh, college campus was on our site. So 
I love Madison, Wisconsin, um, but I would have went to Ann Arbor, Michigan or, or wherever my wife could get a job because there's good brewing scenes in Wisconsin and Michigan and other places in the Midwest. Um, but it just so happens um, my sister-in-law, my wife's sister, is a dentist in Eugene. And we would visit every year from about 2002 on. And as you know, with the Oregon craft beer scene, we just fell in love in the instant. And we, and we love everything about the state of Oregon. And so as we kept looking around the Midwest of where we might move to continue our careers, we're like, why not move out where your sister lives and see if we can get a job? Well, as it happens, Oakshire Brewing, where I worked as employee number five starting in 2009, <laughs> was starting up in 2006, as was Ninkasi. And I was out here on a visit and I set up a tour at Ninkasi with Jamie Floyd and and because um, I knew him from the industry and set up a tour at Steelhead. And then uh, it just so happens the owner of Oakshire, Jeff Althaus, is a patient or was a patient of my sister-in-law. <laughs> They got wow. Yeah, yeah, this is this is great. And they got to talking and and what happened was you know, small talk in the dentist chair. Uh she said, "What do you do?" He said, "Well, I'm starting a little brewery here. This is summer of 2006 or something. Or maybe no, it's fall of 2006 because I won small brew pub brewer of the year at the Great American Beer Festival 2006 and um because uh she said, "My brother-in-law is a brewer in Illinois." He said, What's his name? And because the industry was was very small compared to today, <laughs> right. he knew of my name as the winner of that award and said, oh, my gosh, have him come out and uh, and and chat with me. And so Thanksgiving 2006, he offered me a job because I just said I wanted to move out to Oregon. He said, well, be the brewmaster at, at Oakshire. And I said, sure. But <laughs> it took three years for him to grow the company to a size that made me feel comfortable that I should move my family, sell my house and come to Eugene, Oregon. And so it's not what you know, it's who you know, and making connections. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's an amazing story. Yeah. Uh, oh, when you were at Oakshire, so you there was a little bit of a barrel aging program there, but it was pretty small. Oakshire is not known as a major kind of uh, barrel aging uh, company. I'm I'm interested uh, to know. I, I this I I haven't heard the story anywhere, so. I'm, I'm really interested to know how did you conceive of ale song like that? It seems like kind of an out of the blue thing if you don't know that connective tissue. So what, what inspired you uh, to get into, to, to a, a, you know, approach a brewery that would not be making an IPA and a, uh, you know, the, the standard lineup of ales. Well, it seems crazy to do, but um, the history came actually before that at Flossmore station, um, I also got that job because the brewmaster that had been there from almost the inception to 2003 sort of put them on the map was one of the early pioneers in barrel aging beer, mainly bourbon barrel aged beers. His name was Todd Ashman, and he's worked in a few different places, uh, including Titletown Brewing in, in uh, Wisconsin and, and most previously 5050 Brewing. But he sort of followed that Goose Island thing and started putting beer in bourbon barrels and winning some awards for it. And so I learned some things from him and always had an affinity for sort of that, what I call the fifth, uh, fifth ingredient in beer, which is, which is the complexities of barrel aging. And, um, so when I went out to, um, Oakshire, one of my main roles as well as leading the production team was to be sort of the creative, uh, lead and do all their one-off beers and, uh, help them start a barrel aging program and help them get beer in package, um, which they weren't doing at the time. Uh, so we started 
sort of bottling. Um, but I started throwing beer in barrels, both wine barrels and bourbon barrels, and sort of grew that. And and like many breweries, it's not a huge part. I mean, they do quite a bit of barrel aging, and they, and they have a great barrel aged fest at Oakshire called Hellshire Day. Um, but at every brewery, um, they may have a lot of barrels, but it's a small percentage of what they do. Think uh, Deschutes. They make a lot of Abyss and Dissident. Think, uh, you know, Sierra Nevada and, and um, Firestone Walker. They have an enormous amount of barrels, but it's a small piece of what they do. Mm-hmm. And because of that, you usually get pushed off to the side uh, in lieu of the beers like IPAs and, and things that are bringing in the, the rent money for you and, and the profit. And so um, I had a young man who's now my business partner named Brian Coombs, who was a senior at the University of Oregon, who needed to get a uh, internship to just fulfill the end of his credits before he graduated. And <laughs> so uh, we became friends. He became a coworker, and his job, a sort of second shift, was once the IPA canning line was done and and the uh, forklift was put away. He had to go transfer the barrels and carve up the beer and do things that we couldn't do because barrel aging takes all this space. You got to roll barrels around and use a forklift to bring them down and, and all that. And so it just became this sort of like secondary thing you do after the main brewery is closed. And then the bookkeepers are looking at it and say, we're not really making any money on this. And so <laughs> the, the and reason so what a great he, idea to start a business like that. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's right. let's, take, let's take the part of the business that doesn't make any money and let's create a new business. <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, <laughs> and that's why I told him no when he first came to me. And said, I've got this great idea and, and I've got this brother who's got these experiences that we can utilize and won't this be great? And and uh, really g- right place, right time is what that mm-hmm. came down to is because I had a great job at Oakshire. Um, you know, they, they treated me well. Like I said, I was employee number five and, and helped them grow that company from a thousand barrels to 10,000 barrels. And um it was a good place to, to be, but, but it was time for a change and time for some, a challenge. And, um, I love the barrel aging stuff and it really, I was becoming a manager at a, at a mid-sized brewery sort of. Right. And, uh, and it was time, it was time for another challenge, even though I don't think I have any entrepreneurial bone in my body or any <laughs> sort of risk that I want to take in my life, but I did. So there here I am. So, uh, tell us a little bit, and it, <laughs> Uh, when you first conceived it, you have a brewery now, right? We don't have a brew house. We have a brewery. Yes. It's called Ailsong, but we don't have a, we don't have a brew house to make the wort on. Right. So, uh, tell, tell us how you conceived of this business model. Cause it, you know, in Belgium, uh, you would be what we'd call a blendery, yeah. right? So you would be the, the people who take the wort and turn it into beer, uh, through a process of a maturation and blending. Um, it's, it's really where the skill is. The wort is kind of considered like the, the basic ingredient and people pick their word up from a lot of different places. Uh, right. so, so I don't know very many places that do this kind of thing. Like how, how did you come up with this idea? Well, we, 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 we stole the idea. We, we definitely didn't, um, conceive it ourselves. Um, there are not many breweries doing it. Um, but one of our inspirations is, uh, Crooked Stave out in Colorado. Chad Jacobson's a friend. Mm. Yeah. Um, and also another friend of his, uh, Casey, Troy Casey, Casey Bring and Blending, also in Colorado, are two people that didn't start out with brew houses. Um, and there's a few others, uh, you know, Rare Barrel, they, they brew their own work now, but they didn't to start. They had it contracted. 
Um, the interesting thing though, is we don't buy work. We make work. What we do is we rent a people's brew house. So mm-hmm. while we don't have a brew house, um, we've worked with block 15, uh, and Nkasi, those are the two main ones, but also cold fire and, and even Oakshire. Um, and what happens is I go to those breweries, uh, with all the ingredients that we purchased and I get on the brew deck and, you know, we've got a contract in place. So everyone feels comfortable about the agreement. And, um, we pump out of the heat exchanger, uh, the sweet wort that I made and, um, haul it to our brewery for fermentation and stainless. And then, then in, uh, in barrels for a long amount of time. And then we do the blending. So, so we're a blendery as well. We're a fermentorium, um, but we're a brewery that just borrows or I'm sorry, rents equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, and to your original question, why we conceive this is startup capital for a brewery is a really large and it's why some people don't uh, succeed. And if they do succeed, they don't pay themselves because they've got so much wrapped up in stainless steel. Mm-hmm. And if you walk into many brew houses today, not the biggest and, and most successful, but many brew houses, you're looking at an empty, a couple of empty vessels that aren't being used. Well, you paid for them and you're not getting use out of them. So we didn't want to drop a hundred to $200,000 into a brew house when there's other people's breweries that are well constructed that we could walk into and brew beer on. And as you know, Block 15 makes great beer. Their system is great and I know how to use it. So it works. Yeah. It's also interesting uh, to think when you think of of the way a brewery flows and works. Uh, if you're doing a lot of stuff in a barrel house and you're doing, especially if you're working with wild uh, ingredients, the the physical facility to have a brewery uh, negotiate that stuff becomes much more complex. So you've got to deal with uh, with other stuff. So I, I suspect from a facilities point of view, it even makes some sense. Yeah. And, and it's certainly not without its challenges. We had to get a truck that could haul a lot of wort. Um, we have to put the time, like when we go and brew at block 15, I drive 45 minutes to an hour up the road, brew. Um, someone comes up with a car while I'm cleaning up the brew house. They have to drive it all the way back to our, our cellar, which is South of Eugene. And so that's like an hour and 15 minutes in that truck to pump it into the tank. So so it's tough. Um, and, and you know, the other thing I didn't mention, I, I said from a business standpoint is why we started that way. But in reality, the character of our beer so much comes from the barrel, the mixed culture, the local fruit that we add, the blending that we do on the back end, that the word is important, but um, it's not the most important part of the flavor profile that we come up with in an ale song beer. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I, I really want to uh, talk about the business part uh, loop back around to that. But before we go too far down that road, let's talk about your beer um, because it is uh, uh, you, you make kind of two, two veins here, wild and not wild barrel aged beers. Um, but in, but I'm really interested in particular in the wild beers. Uh, and we actually have two examples, uh, the ones that you sent us, uh, Patrick and I have, and I thought maybe we could start talking about, uh, these beers, and you could tell us how they're made, uh, and then we can talk. We can we can sample them while you're uh, going through this process, and you can talk about what the flavor notes that you get out of them and and where that stuff comes from. Um, how's that sound? That sounds great. Okay, so I've got the farmhouse cuvee. So we're we're in our separate houses. So we had to divide and conquer. I've got the farmhouse cuvee, which I believe was the gold medal winner, or was it the silver? It was the gold. Okay, and Patrick has the touch of Brett uh, with with uh, Citra, 
Citra hops. Okay. Uh, so does one of these make more sense to talk about first? Well, why don't we start with the touch of Brett for okay. a couple of reasons? Uh, All right. And while you're doing that, I'm that opening good. my beer. That was a good choice. Cause okay. I get to, Oh, you're going to cheat Jeff. I see. <laughs> you're not starting to drink without me, man. <laughs> so, uh, I'll just say that the presentation is in a 500 milliliter bottle with cork and cage, uh, very elegant. And I have to say your, uh, your brand and your label is beautiful. Um, it's sort of uh, evocative of a wine bottle that's um here we go oh you beat me to it jeff there. How about that? <laughs> all right it's carbonated sweet yeah <laughs> yeah very effervescent yeah so oh, i'll just tell it. you real quick while you're putting that okay. into the glass and deciding yep. how you're going to describe it um we do kind of have three veins actually that that we put uh certain beers into rather than just the, the wild mixed culture things and and clean uh spirits barrel age um we kind of take our wild beers and we have sort of the brett and farmhouse beers and then we have sort of our sour uh, uh line and these two mm -hmm. beers kind of fall into the brett farmhouse although the farmhouse cuvee that jeff has uh it does have a mixed culture in it so there is lactobacillus um, but many of our fruited sour beers are quite quite uh high in acidity so we kind of put them in a different category as something like Touch of Brett, which is 100% Brettanomyces fermented. Wow. Uh, yeah. So this one is um, super effervescent. Uh, I roused a huge head, probably more than I intended. Uh, it's it's uh, uh, straw colored. I'm actually in a slightly dimly lit room, so I'm doing my best here. Um, and uh, uh, a bit hazy. Has a beautiful... Um, A beautiful nose. I can I can sense the Brett, but the the Citra is a really interesting note that goes on top of it, isn't it? Yeah, and and you you nailed it on the head. That's that's the point of that beer. Um, uh, that one won the silver medal this year at the Great American Beer Festival in the Brett beer category. And so far, in five years of competing with that beer, it's won uh, gold, two bronzes, and a silver. And uh, wow. these these days, that is sort of. I, not unprecedented. People like Firestone Walker and some other breweries win multiple times in certain categories, but it's hard to do that. And uh, we're pretty proud of it. And and interestingly, a little backstory, that Touch of Brett was the first beer that we ever put in a bottle. It's probably our third batch of beer we ever made. And the reason we made it is because we knew that if we made a 100% Britannomyces fermented beer, we mm -hmm. wouldn't need a year or more to sort of finish it. It could be yeah. done in you know, three to five months. And as you start a barrel aged brewery or a winery, you got to stick <laughs> beer in, in barrels as fast as possible to get some age on them. And we needed some beers that we could turn around a little faster. Um, and we were always interested in primary fermenting of Britannomyces because it's a totally different character than if you sort of stress out the yeast by adding it in secondary fermentation when there's less sugar to eat for that yeast and, and other sort of alcohol already formed. Uh, and what you get is, and I hope you're tasting some of these notes, is uh, a lot of tropical flavors, mm -hmm. citrusy flavors, um, real fruitiness that is real from a healthy fermentation, rather than as much of the funky, hay, earthy, farmhouse, barnyard sort of things you might expect from a Brett beer. Um, and we knew that there was so many great hops being used these days that are going in America. We could play off the flavors of these dry hops. We've used, uh, uh, Citra, Mandarina Bavaria, Galaxy, uh, Mosaic. Um, and, um, uh, and it's just, a, I think it's a great interaction of the yeast esters 
from Britannomyces and the dry hopping. And that's what we did. And we came out of the gate and won a gold in 2016. And so we said, well, I guess we got to keep making the beer. It wasn't set out to be a flagship or anything, but we brew it seasonally now and it comes out every May. Yeah, it's uh, it's marvelous. Uh, it has, it's very, it, it finishes very dry and you get a little bit of the funk on sort of the, the end, the end of the, uh, the taste, but um, the, the fruit is really brilliant. It, 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 it comes from the esters brilliantly and then is uh, uh, enhanced by the citra hops. I, I think it's extraordinary. Thank you. Well, the two, we've done it twice with citra and citra has won the gold and the silver at JBF. So we may start sticking with that a little bit more. I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's very citrusy. So uh, tell us a little bit about how you make it. You uh, you get the wort and then you, you pitch the brett. What strain of brett do you use and have you so, used different strains? Yeah, we've used different strains. So so the base beer is um, a simple Saison recipe, uh, multi-grain that you, you know, you put some oats and so a heavy dose of wheat, um, uh, maybe just a touch of rye. Uh, we started using Mecca grade from Central Oregon. Um, we don't use all Oregon ingredients or all Northwest ingredients, but we try to as much as possible. And that's just fantastic malt from Madras, Oregon. Um, and uh, so it's a Saison recipe and we pitch Brett. And we've used um, single strains, um, Broxolensis and, and Lambicus. Uh, and we've also mixed them. Um, we really, it's interesting that we've been a, uh, consistently made this beer and it, it's done well at competition. We've loved the flavor profile and we've always kind of used a different uh, yeast strain or blend of, of Britannomyces yeast. Um, we don't have a house strain that we just always love to use. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the reasons is because all of these beers have different personalities at times. You know, as you know from Belgian lambic tradition, uh, it is a real skill to be able to make consistency in barrel aged beers because of the mm -hmm. separate environments of each barrel. And so we don't, we don't pretend that every touch of bread or every beer we make of the same label is going to taste the same. Um, and so therefore we just, we, we play with different bread strains and find ones we like. Uh, and how long you, you, uh, you, you do the primary fermentation in the barrel or do you do uh, it on? We yeah, almost, Almost all the beers we make primary ferment in stainless uh, mm -hmm. in our fermenters, and then we go yeah. down to barrel to finish. There are some occasions where we don't have tank space and we'll do a oak fermentation. Um, one of the problems with oak fermentation is you just got this little container that's getting all messy with yeast, harder to clean. Right. Uh, you're leaving a little head space. It's getting yeast all over the floor. You know, stainless steel fermenters are made for... Uh, efficiency and keeping that stuff inside that can be cleaned out nicely down the drain. So it's just a better process. And then you don't have a big yeast load sitting in your barrel for several months. Right. Uh, and, and this beer, we, we let it finish in oak um, and it probably spends six months on average, five to eight months, maybe somewhere in that range, uh, sort of uh, finishing, developing its flavors. And then uh -huh. just like every beer, we, we've got, um, I think we have about 400 casks right now, uh, different barrels. And, um, the great thing about being an all barrel aged brewery is that we have this huge inventory to, um, pull from. So we can use multiple years or multiple batches and just pick out the best ones we like, do a little blend trial on the bench and, um, bring it up to a tank. So this beer spends about between, uh, six to nine months from brew day to packaging. Gotcha. Uh, have you, 
do you do do gravity readings? Do you uh, know how much it drops once it gets in the barrel? I assume it, it finishes out fairly dry before it even gets in the barrel. Yeah, typically it, it depends on our timing and, and what needs to go into a tank. Um, sometimes, uh, uh, you know, it's usually down to about uh, one Play-Doh, two Play-Doh, so 10.04 to 10.08, um, somewhere in that range. We just let it finish out that last little bit with a fermentation bung on the barrel. Yeah. And uh, so, sometimes it, it, it stalls out and we're not sure if it's finished. Sometimes it goes all the way down to dry and stainless. And that's a little bit why I call Britannomyces a wild yeast. I know it's debated some amongst <laughs> brewers whether you should call it wild if you bought it from a laboratory. But um, I think that Britannomyces is a little bit like a uh, wild stallion. And sometimes it's hard to predict what it's going to do. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's especially true once you get it inside its own little ecosystem and, and right. let it go. Because then, yep. then it does its own weird stuff after that. Yeah, it's, it's less predictable than Saccharomyces for sure. And, uh, and we... We give it its due respect. And when do you add the hops? Oh, so um, um, it's it's a fairly hop-forward saison in the base beer recipe, and then um, we will add that at blending time. Uh, we pretty much use um, two tanks so that we can we'll bring it up to stainless and maybe a conical tank just back to the fermenter to do the dry hopping. It'll spend four to seven days on the dry hops, and then we'll move it over to the packaging tank to bottle up. Um, but all that's added to the end because the, the beer that you're drinking, that Patrick's drinking, um, was packaged in May. And so hopefully it's still got some good hop character uh, there. With bottle conditioning, we eat up some of that oxygen in package. Um, it has excellent hop character, yes. Still. Good. And, and, and that's been a while in the bottle. And so we, we love the shelf life on these beers. Um, but I also, the other reason we like this beer so much is because there's an interplay of those hops and yeast Mm-hmm. And it's different on day one than it is after six months as it has after a year, you know, a little like Orval and all yeah, that. I bet. Uh, sure. Yeah. The esters cool. are very dominant, I would say, but you can definitely. Yeah. 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 yeah and and uh, you mentioned Orval, a famous uh, uh, Brett aged uh, Abbey Ale, and it will dry out. And, and it's quite a hoppy beer to begin with, too. Also dry hopped, but then uh, those hops fade away and it and it really changes. Uh, and people have different preferences for when they, they drink it. And I bet that's true with uh, Touch of Bread, because for those who don't know, Touch of Bread is really, I think, your calling card. And when people uh, talk about uh, the kind of a, con- you, you make a bunch of different beers, but um, kind of a, it's one of the through lines. So people will often talk about it as a point of reference. Uh, so I'm betting that people are starting to have that same kind of approach, like uh, buy a bottle and put it away for as long as, you know, until, until it hits your preferred dryness and, and uh, hop character and all that. Yeah, I hope, I hope people are. We, we try to let people know that market is such, you know, we're not trying to replicate Orval, but um, uh, it is a great thing to do to be able to experience that beer. And, um, you know, it turns out that Saison's are not an easy sell these days. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, if, if it was called a uh, Brett Saison IPA, uh, maybe. But, um, yeah, so we have to work hard to, to promote it. We tell people like that beer now, if you drink pale ales or IPAs, you'll probably like Touch of Brett. You, you'll probably enjoy the flavor profile. Yeah, um, I was just about to say exactly that. It's an incredibly approachable beer. And if you, yeah, if you like that sort of modern IPA profile, this is the profile that's sort of coming through in its own expression, of course. It's, it's uh, you know, it's got Brett, it's a sour beer, but, um, uh, but it's just wonderfully fruity. 
Yeah, I, I feel like we could put IPA somewhere on that thing. And with, with today's sort of nomenclature, we probably could get away with calling it a, a something or other IPA, but we're not going there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, let, let's move to the uh, farmhouse cuvee, which I've got. And it's uh, a really interesting beer. It has it, it has an incredibly uh, distinctive apricot note in the, right in the heart of it. Um, which is interesting. So this is, um, you describe on the bottle that it is uh, also dry hopped and it uses peco. Is that how you yep. pronounce that? Yep. Uh, so how does how do these two beers differ? Uh, they differ in, of course, the, the dry hop is there, a different variety, but, but still has some citrusy notes to it. Um, but the main thing is this one has uh, a mixed culture in it. In, in other words, <laughs> it's got some bacteria in it for a little more yeah. souring. And... Um, I'll say that um, when we brew, um, uh, and, and this is not unlike Lambic Brewers and some of the American uh, sort of wild beer brewers too, is we make a lot of different beers, but a lot of our base beer is uh, similar recipes. So we've got a Brett Saison recipe that becomes Touch of Bread and gets blended into other things. We've got a blonde sour uh, recipe that gets turned into a lot of our fruited sours. Uh, and then we've got our, uh, you know, sta- oh, we got a, a dark sour, which becomes a, a red sour called Parliament. And then um, we've got our clean beers and stouts and things like that. Um, so we do some different things beyond those, but the bulk of our production is that. And then we take it, put it in different barrels, blend it in different ways. And so what you've got in your hand is a mixture of um, some of the Brett Saison and some of the uh, sour blonde base, as we call it. And this has an interesting story. This was released in February of 2020 this year. It was a club only beer. And um, so it wasn't sold in the stores. That's why I wanted to get it to you when you were looking for some of the winners. Mm -hmm. Um, And we had uh, the way we release beers is every four times a year, we release about four or five beers. And typically there's a couple wild and sour and a couple spirits barrel aged, um, except for May, we don't have any barrel-aged beers come out. I'm sorry, spirits barrel-aged beers. Well, in February of this year, we had three bourbon barrel-aged beers and one sort of wild and sour thing. And we decided that was too much booziness to be giving our club members <laughs> one time. And so we needed a- another beer in this wild and sour category. So, and this is the beauty of having a, a tall towers of barrels around your cellar. We just went and started tasting barrels, rough afternoon at work, coming up with some sort of blend of these different things that we could make into a beer. Uh, it, it didn't have any any rhyme or reason other than we wanted something that tasted great that we could add a little dry hop to for some interesting notes. I had never tried this hop before either. I just searched on uh, the spot list. As you can imagine with the beers we make, I don't have hop contracts. I just mm-hmm. buy them. I buy them from larger breweries who have excess because sales may or may not be going as well as they want. So I thought it looked like an interesting hop with great flavor profile. We stuck it in this beer, um, and it won gold this year at, in the specialty Saison category at GABF, um, which is is Saisons that you do something else to. Maybe you add fruit. Maybe you put it in a barrel, mixed culture. Maybe you dry hop it. So that's what specialty Saison means. Um, and, and that's where the beer came from. Yeah, this beer is. Um, I'm really glad on the the label that you don't identify it as uh, a sour beer or anything like that. I know that that is commercial suicide, and it because it has an an acid profile that's really similar to white wine, 
And, you know, when you look at a bottle of, of Pinot Gris or something, it doesn't say sour on there, <laughs> you know, uh, even though wine is fairly tart. Yeah. Uh, and uh, this has um, the Brett undertone, which kind of gives it this earthy, almost tannic kind of uh, quality. And then the, uh, the, the lactic acid side is just it's it's very fruit like it's very much like malic acid here so it's uh uh you know it, it just kind of lifts the the beer up and makes it much fruitier and then i don't know is the apricot note coming from the peco hops what is that apricot note coming from yeah, it, it could a... be or it, it could just be from the yeast i, I find uh-huh. a lot of the fruity characters what you know stone fruit and yeah. and other sort of citrusy notes and things like that come from both of those two ingredients and, and I, I can't pinpoint it. Uh, I can tell you there's nothing else in there, but the four main ingredients. Are in there. Yeah. It's, 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 I mean, sometimes you find this, uh, as a consequence of fruit, uh, or I mean, as uh, yeast or, or hops, but it, it's a real dead ringer for, for actual fruit. And if you yeah. had just handed me a glass of this, I would have said, Oh, is this, what did you age this on apricots? <laughs> That's awesome. It's very, it's very nice. And again, very balanced. I think, one of the things that Americans have learned to do in the last decade is take wild uh, bacteria and yeast uh, and use them with with beers that are not aggressive. And uh, Patrick and I, uh, some time ago, maybe six months ago, maybe a year ago, I don't know, we did a we did a, a podcast on uh, these kinds of beers, which I've been calling mixed saison. Uh, mixed fermentation saisons they don't really have a good name they're kind of an american invention um, because they're not spontaneous and you put them together kind of compo- you 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 uh in your marketing material you you talk about composing songs and these beers are really are composed with these different elements uh, to produce very easy uh approachable beers uh, even though they are quite complex they're not like the sours that we got back in you know 2010 which would take the enamel off your teeth Uh, you 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 hit the nail on the head and that's what we really strive for you know it's so many american brewers throughout the last decade or two have made you know overly hoppy beers and and now it's overly pure fruit pureed beers and and uh, overly sour beers and all those things and and um walk into a winemaker and ask them if they make overly oaked beers and i know some do (laughs) overly fruity beers or acidic, or I'm sorry, wines. Uh, and you know, when you drink a glass of wine, you're, you're looking for a pleasurable experience of, of balance of oak tannins and, and fruity notes and the esters from the yeast. And, and we approach it that way too. And, and I'm glad you notice it because, you know, we're, we're not going to, uh, have the longest lines out of our brewery because we don't have the most extreme beers in the world. And, and we're okay with that because what happens is we enjoy drinking the beers, which is important. And, and two, we get all kinds of, I don't, I don't know if I should say common folk, but just people who you wouldn't expect to be drinking mixed culture, wild, sour, barrel-aged beers walk into our brewery and just are our best, our best customers, best fans, mm-hmm. because it's a drinkable, dry, food-friendly, interesting, complex, delicious beer. Totally. And that's what we're trying to do. So uh, I, I want to come back to the business, but I have one last question. Uh, uh, the Another technique you use, and I, I, I trust you don't use this very often, but it's it's the beer that I had with my uh, uh, Thanksgiving feast was the beer that you used uh, Pinot grapes to inoculate uh, the wort with. 
Um, tell us about that. That was an incredibly good beer. Uh, my wife, Sally, uh, you didn't hear us when we were talking about this earlier, but my wife, Sally was drinking wine and I poured this beer out and she, she immediately abandoned the wine to, uh, (laughs) to go for this beer because it was, it was, it was like a perfect hybrid of the two. Yeah. Thank, thank you. So, so our, our tasting room is, is plopped in the Southern end of the Willamette Valley out in wine country beside King Estate. And we did that for a reason. Um, first of all, because we love wine. Uh, and second of all, because we want to try to replicate that experience you get when you're out in the country and it's peaceful and, and whatnot. On top of that, Brian Coombs uh, worked at King Estate and in the wine industry for a little bit um, before we opened Song, just to really get a feel for how winemakers use barrels. Because uh, mm-hmm. a lot of what the wine world does, both in their production and also marketing, has done a great job of of really uh, grabbing onto that industry of, of beverage drinkers. Uh, and we wanted to replicate some of that. And then his brother, Doug, worked down in um, Napa and Sonoma, um, kind of with wineries, not on the production side, but more on the financial side and, and working with business growth. Um, so we had that kind of background to start with. And then we got invited. We, we made several wine hybrid beers, we call them, um, where we use wine grapes similar to how you'd put fruit in beer, um, but with some of the winemaking processes uh, like punch downs and, and malolactic fermentation and things like that. Um, so we're, do, we're doing that stuff. And we got invited to the Firestone Walker Terroir Project Festival um, a year and a quarter ago. And that project is all about wine beer hybrids where brewers from out throughout the world uh, get together um, at, down at Firestone Walker and make a collaboration every year that's served at this fest. And we finally got the invite. And that beer that you had was, was our, our supposed to be this fall's uh, uh, entry into that festival, but, but it got canceled, of course. Right. Um, and that beer, uh, we were all supposed to use grapes. We had a similar beer recipe we made at our breweries. You use grapes that were grown from within 100 miles of your brewery. And this was like 20 miles from our brewery. Mm-hmm. And uh, they all had to be um, uh, foot stomped, which I jumped in the tub. And- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, wow. That awesome. ruined it all. And, and, then, uh, and then we had to spontaneously ferment it with whatever was on the grapes. And so... That's a hard process to make great beer spontaneously. Uh, some people in our country are doing it, um, but it's it's tough when we don't do it that much. But we let the wort ferment on whatever critters were on those grapes, and then uh, blended it up, and that's what happened. So. Uh... It's a great technique. Uh, Jason Collar at uh, Solera does this too, yeah. and and you get you get. I think it's a little bit safer than just straight ferment, uh, wild fermentation because you're actually inoculating with stuff that's there. But um, but also you know you you get what you get, and I've done some wild cider fermentations, and there's some pretty gnarly stuff that are it's on the the, the skins of fruits. Um, so h- how did that work? Uh, what did you learn from it? And, yeah. Tell, tell us about that fermentation. Well, yes, it is interesting because, you know, spontaneous fermentation you, it, on, on a basic level is just let it go and whatever's there will ferment it. And that, that's true. But we also learned that you you have to do um, some care with it, you know, and and you have to, uh, um, you know, keep oxygen uh, out of the process uh, once it starts fermenting, um, which which is done from CO2 production. But you don't want the fruit cap to dry out. So I mentioned um, punch downs, which is a, a wine process where they go to the top of the tank and punch the fruit down to stay, keep it hydrated. 
Um, so you don't have some some acids forming that that produce some pretty bad flavors and aromas. Um, so so just kind of the the babysitting of it during fermentation. You can't just walk away because you'll get some of those nastiness that you mentioned on wild cider ferment. Um, yeah. And then the other thing too is I, I've learned this early in my career, but but it's even more so now. Um, if you make barrel aged beer, you have to be ready to dump stuff down the drain and any of that stuff that doesn't taste right. We don't blend it away. We just dump it down the drain. And so sometimes rarely does the whole batch kind of go off. Sometimes it's barrel per barrel. Um, but if you have your process down, you, you can save the batch and, and it, it tastes great. Um, not all of our wine ferments have, have been perfect. Um, we've learned the right amount of grapes to use. The first mm. time we ever did it with Pinot Noir, we had, kind of a little bit of, uh, uh, of, of grape character, but it wasn't enough. And so we added more and we had one with Cab Sauv grapes, which was just fantastic. And we have one out on the market now that's kind of rosé inspired. So half the batch was on uh, Pinot Noir must and half was on Pinot Noir juice. And we mixed those back together. So you had a little grape tannin, grape skin tannin, um, and still that juicy fruitiness and a beautiful pink color. So it's been fun to experiment and, and learn things from winemakers and, and other brewers who are doing it. Um, it's challenging, but rewarding. That's cool. Well, let's, you mentioned the club a little bit and I'm going to throw most of this next section to Patrick, but um, uh, this is a really unusual, you're, you're not brewing, you know, most beer is a, is a production it's a production product. Uh, you, you make your money by selling a fair amount of it. Um, and you know, you, you, you it, it's a, a pretty simple beverage, uh, and you're going for volume. That was not your approach. So, uh, Patrick, I don't know if you want to pick it up from there, but, um, I'm curious how, how this all looks from the business side. Yeah, yeah that's so, a perfect entry. Go ahead. Yeah. If, if you had a question, go ahead, Patrick, but, 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 the basics of it is um, um, we have a club and, and, you know, you, you can, you can look at it like you want of a, a, a mug club or kind of how many brew pubs do. It's, it's our most loyal fans who are willing to buy beer every quarter uh, and get some special perks for it. Um, uh, with our club, it runs not unlike a wine club where uh, you sign up and we have four releases a year. Um, you get a, either six bottles or 12 bottles, depending on if you're, uh, which, which group you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some benefits like you get a, uh, a flight of our beer every time you walk in the door, um, you get 10% off all your purchases. Uh, you also get beer that no one else gets our four beers that we release every quarter. One is club only. So you can't even buy it in our tasting room. You have to be part of the club. Mm-hmm. One is uh, a small blend also that's will only be found at the tasting room. So you have to come down to Eugene to get it. Uh, and then two others go to distribution. We make a little bigger batches. Uh, and so basically eight beers of ours go to stores and we make, uh, you know, 16 to 20 beers uh, throughout the year. Um, and it's great because those customers, um, you know, we've got direct access to them to, to market to them and talk to them. And mo- most importantly, uh, selling direct to consumer, which the wine industry, again, has has figured out long before the brewing industry um, it is a is a great way to make more of the margin. Patrick, well, I was going to actually just uh, double back to the idea uh, of using uh, of not having your own uh, brew house. I was wondering, not only does that reduce capital cost, but would you keep that brew house busy uh, the whole time if if you had one? Uh, does it even make sense to own one? Uh, 
Yeah, you know, we have been a company, we've been making beer since 2016. So we're, we're approaching our fifth anniversary. And, and I mentioned before, Crooked Stave was an inspiration to us. And by year five, they had a beautiful brew house that they were brewing on. Mm. Uh, they now make IPA and Pilsner, uh, as do many people who started out like us. And I figured by now we would have one. But when we think about the number of batches we make um, and the beers that we brew, we, we wouldn't. And, uh, you know, we, we would have to have a lot of extra money to say, well, it's no big deal. Let's just buy it for the heck of it. It, <laughs> it, it certainly would be great to have a, you know, a little five or 10 barrel brew house to make stuff for the for the tasting room only. Sure. But we were making 20 barrel batches at Block 15 and we make some 50 barrel batches over at Ninkasi uh, and they get put into barrels and, and, um, so we don't have to brew quite as much, don't have as much labor as, as that is. And, uh, yeah, I, I think it would be sitting there empty to your question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the fact that, uh, like Crooked Stave is doing a Pilsner and an IPA is probably endogenous to the fact that they have this brew house that they need right. to make money off of. Right. <clears throat> so I was also curious, I mean, you're in a, you're in a very particular segment now in the high end of the, uh, of the beer market. Um, so, uh, lower volume and, um, uh, higher margin. I'm wondering in these pandemic days, how that is playing out in the marketplace. Are, are your beers find it having a harder time now, or are there still a market for these? Yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I think there's still a market. Um, you know, people are still drinking beer and that's good news for all of us. Um, what's interesting is, um, a beer that's a little, uh, uh higher end on the, the dollar side mm-hmm. and takes a little bit more hand selling by the retailer, perhaps, um, you know, less people are walking in, even if a, a, you know, a Belmont station or some other bottle shop is open, no one wants to sit around with a bunch of people staring at labels and picking up stuff, you know, you're not right. touching stuff like that. So, you know, we've had good success, uh, um, you know, delivering some beer and, and, and things like that. And we have this loyal, uh, uh club who, um, once you sign up for the club, although you can you can cancel any time, we know there is income coming in every quarter from those customers. Yeah. Um, and and at a bottle shop in distribution, um, those bottles are probably going to sit on the shelf longer because there's less traffic in that shop and there's less uh, sort of communication about our beers. They, you know, we don't we can't do tastings at places and right. little things like that make it a little harder because we have to be up in front of a customer telling them about these esoteric beers. And I guess uh, it, there's something about being a part of a club where you become more invested in the in, in in who's making the beer and how they're making it and following it at a more at a closer level. It probably makes those people appreciate your beer a little bit more the more they get into it. Yeah, I think for sure, and uh, they are committed because you know they. They pay for that beer every quarter, thankfully, and, and they want to know what's going on. And, and, you know, we even have a Facebook group for our blender circle is what we call it. And, um, you know, they can stay connected with each other because uh, you feel like you're part of something and we can stay connected with them. And, and it's, it's just a good way to do business uh, because, you know, you know who your customer is. When it, when it goes out to the shelves, you just hope someone's going to grab it and enjoy it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I bet I, I bet if you're even a, a small brewery or Deschutes, that gives you the willies. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's for sure, because there's so much. I mean, that the pull through is, is what you really need out there. You can make the best beer in the world, but if your branding's not right, if, if you know, you're not at the right stores and, and the right people aren't seeing it, you're not going to be successful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
before we wrap up, what what's the future look like? What are, are have you hit your stride, or is it more a matter of uh, refinement and perfection, uh, or are you going to mix things up? What what's the what's, uh, what's, what's the future, future? Look like? Uh, yeah. When did they have vaccines coming out? <laughs> um, no, no, the future the future looks good. We we had a great year this year, despite um, you know the pandemic we're living through. Uh, our property is five acres out in the country, and um, we had lots of people visit this this summer um, because we have outdoor safe space. Um, and uh, um, we are worried now about the winter because that same outdoor safe space is is getting rained on and it's chilly. Um, so we we actually opened up an in town tasting room right when the governor of Oregon uh, put a freeze on all your stuff, which is challenging. Um, yeah. but, but we're going to open that back up this week, uh, to outdoor dining and, uh, it's going to be a great 2021 at that in town, kind of easier to get to, uh, uh, tasting room. So we're excited about that. Um, we also changed this winter to guided tastings, which we can't do right now due to the, uh, regulations on the, with the pandemic, but, um, it's going to be basically like a winery takes you through a one-on-one tasting, uh, of, of not only beer, but beer and food pairings that's going to be happening and, and should be a real nice, uh, we've got good reception to it for people signing up for those slots. Um, and then, then finally, um, you know, we partnered with Ninkasi about a year ago, um, to sell through their distribution channel. And what that's done is it's allowed us to focus on the club and the tasting room while someone who has a, a large network of sales team is able to take our beer to more than just Oregon, and so you can find our beer in Washington, Idaho, Nevada, California, uh, and of course, Oregon. Um, and so, yeah, the experts are doing that because they do that well. And right. uh, we're focused on our direct-to-consumer chain, um, which is really where we want to be at talking directly with our customers who love our beer. Well, that sounds like a, a wonderful life you've carved out there, making really cool, uh, beers that other people aren't doing. Uh, it's probably makes you a little bit anxious not to be selling IPA, but also, um, <laughs> you know, you're, you're able to reach a customer that doesn't have many other options. So that's nice. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's diversification. Uh, we get, we're a little bit different than other people and we're okay with that. Um, we, from the start, we said, why would we want to be an industrial park, roll up the garage door IPA brewer, even though that can look very, uh, um, good as far as sales and dollar in the cash register goes, but, uh, all that work doesn't always come down to profit. And, um, uh, here's a little tidbit is that, uh, I think this was coined by my, uh, business partner, one of the two, or he stole it from someone else was we'd rather slow down and pick up dimes than hurry up and pick up pennies. And that's just how we're operating. (laughs) Well, uh, I wish you the very best of a 2021 post (laughs) <laughs> vaccine perhaps <clears throat> but even pre-vaccine uh thank you very much for joining us matt van wyke Pre- uh, appreciate it very much indeed Thanks, yeah guys. thank you so much i plan to uh once COVID is done uh, i want to do a, a tour of oregon and, and visit as many breweries as i can so uh you know COVID willing um i hope to see you sometime in 2021 you bet. And I, I'd, I'd love to offer you guys a guided tasting that we're starting up. I, I want to uh, have you sit down at our brewery and, and walk you through our beers and, and uh, it'd be an honor to have you. Well, <laughs> the honor would be ours, of course, but you're, right. on, you're on. <laughs> Consider <laughs> <right>. it done. <laughs> Once we get this vaccine out, we're there. You got it. All right. Well, thank you, Matt. Uh, it was really great to talk to you. Yeah. Thanks. thanks. Cheers.
Uh, once again, big thanks to Matt Van uh, Wyk of Alesong uh, Brewing and Blending in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, look for their beers uh, throughout the West, as we've learned. Um, absolutely fabulous. Indeed. Uh, after we stopped recording, we talked a little bit about how throwing, uh, casting back to that podcast we did at the GABF about how Oregon has really developed kind of a, a specialty niche in these types of beers. Um, and Ale Song is really out in front. So check them out for sure. Yeah. And their neighbors, as he was mentioning, Cold Fire and Eugene also picked up a couple awards too. So that's right. And I think they were, I think Cold Fires were also both barrel aged yes. beers. That's yeah, right. So. Yeah. So anyway, uh, this touch of Brett, by the way, is fabulous. If you can find some, do. Uh, I think it'll uh, hit all your, uh, your hot spots for good beer. Especially if, like, especially if you like like fruity citrusy stuff like IPAs and pales. That is actually one of the beers uh, that I've had from Ale Song. I've had uh, before before this batch that Matt sent us. I'd had maybe a half dozen of his beers, and and uh, two or three of them were different iterations of that beer. It's a really good beer. Yeah, I just uh, I have a quick memory. Uh, the of all things, the University of Oregon Museum of Natural History, I think is what they call it, uh, does a uh, uh, like a science pub kind of thing. Right. They, they invited me down a few years ago to do a science pub down in Eugene. And uh, that was when you spoke at, right? Yeah. I, I, I spoke about the business of craft beer and uh, Matt came and was in the audience and, and uh, we chatted afterward and he was just getting going with Ale Song. Uh, and he was really curious about what I thought uh, the business would, would look like. And so um, I'm super pleased to see how well he's done and, and what amazing beers he's brewing. And that doesn't surprise me because he's just a, an, uh, an amazing brewer. Yeah. And he is a brewer and he, you know, he kind of poo-pooed their, their business uh, approach, but actually, you know, he's done an incredibly good job of attending to that, that group of people who are interested in these kinds of beers and, Anybody who lives in the Northwest will know the reputation of Ale Song. You know, they've done a really good job of carving out this niche so that when people are looking for these kinds of beers, they're the first brewery that people think of. Yep. So um, they've done a great job of, of working in, a, in an environment that's kind of unusual in the beer world. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we should wrap this up because we're going a little bit long. So a few words yep. going out. Uh, please subscribe on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We didn't have time to do mailbag today, but please do send your questions or comments to jeff at beervonablog.com or on Twitter. We are at beervonapod. Jeff blogs at beervonablog and tweets at beervana. And Patrick tweets at beernomics. All right. Well, I still have a bit of this uh, touch of Brett Citra from Ale Song Brewing and Blending in Eugene, Oregon. And I have my extremely tasty farmhouse cuvee. Both of these, by the way, they make they tend to make pretty darn big beers. Mine's four and a half or eight and a half percent. I don't know how big yours is. Uh, but, eight point um, one. But I'm, I'm glad trying to not focus on that because I'm, that, drink, I'm drinking it a little too fast. <laughs> that's right. So it's 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 turning into a nice afternoon, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The sun's actually out right now. So all right. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, cheers, Jeff. All right. Cheers, Patrick.